Welcome to the Apple of Truth, our bi-weekly podcast where we nerd out about our favorite TV shows. Currently, we are covering every single episode of Good Omens based on the book by Sir Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And because we are who we are, we focus on details you didn't need, but for sure deserve. I'm Lina. And I'm Vero. And today we're talking about episode four, Saturday morning fun times. Did you have fun? I had about as much fun as the bunnies. Great fun, then not that much fun. And then, you know, fun again. Bunnies? Yeah, the cartoon bunnies from Saturday fun times. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I did not know that the bunnies in the cinema are called Saturday morning fun times. That's three bunnies and each of them is holding a sign and one of them says Saturday, the other one morning and the third one says fun time. So it's named after that. I did not catch that. <gasps> oh my God. I, I actually got something that you, oh my God. This is like a, um, a screenshot moment. I took note of the fact that I did not know why Crowley was in the cinema and what he was watching. So yeah. <laughs> I still don't know why he was in there but yes the bunnies are holding a little signs that reads the name of the episode so Saturday morning fun times I did not have fun I did not enjoy this episode for many many reasons and that is reflected in my summary time is ticking down our couple is still on breakup the first casualties are happening angels are still dicks generational foes turned lover and Adam is now officially the creepiest of the creeps See, and finally I can agree with you on that. He was always creepy. <sighs> we are never going to agree on this. So we are going to create like a team. Adam being a child and team Adam being a creep. It's called a poll. Yes. It's going to be a running <laughs> poll for the whole 12 weeks of this show coming out. Uh-huh. Okay. Take it away, Bob, with the complicated words, please. Okay. Well, complicated words. I just, I couldn't, like, there was nothing that would shout what? at me for this British word segment. So I just figured I'm going to write down the etymology of a word that I know very well. I've always found it weird. And it's the word lorry. Okay. <laughs> I did not expect that. I genuinely couldn't, you know, usually when you watch it, there is a word when you go like, oh, okay, whatever. But I watched it and then I was like speeding through it because nothing jumped out at me immediately. So I just went through the episode again. It's like, I can't think of anything that I would choose. So I was like, hey, you know what? There is this thing that I've known since I was a child because it was one of the first tongue twisters that I learned well actually probably the first tongue twister that I learned in English and that is the uh, infamous red lorry yellow lorry red lorry yellow lorry red lorry yellow lorry I back then didn't even know what a lorry was I did not know this tongue twister Oh, did you know? That's like red lorry yellow lorry red okay now I see it there yes. you go What I thought it means when I was a kid, I don't properly remember. It probably had to do with shapes and colors because it was connected to the colors of red lorry and yellow lorry. What it actually means and what I actually learned afterwards, it means is a truck. So very simple, it's a truck. The origin of the word is unfortunately uncertain. I really enjoy looking up etymologies of words. However, in this one, we have a few options, but nothing for certain. It could be from a dialectal English lorry, which meant to lug or pull about or to drag, or 
It could be from the forename lorry, for reasons unknown. Because lorry is a lorry driver and that's why they named it after them. Exactly. So it first started appearing in early to middle 19th century and it predates obviously cars, but it was a name for a thing that was pulled originally. Hence, that's why people think that it comes from the lorry or to pull something. And then it eventually worked itself into a motor-pulled vehicle, a.k.a. a truck. Not what I expected today for the most British word, but I do wonder. Laurie, yeah, it is kind of British. I went a completely different route, as per usual. I went with precipitate. That's not said in the episode. That's not a real word. That is said when Xerophel asks the Metatron what event will precipitate the Armageddon. Oh. And I was like, say what? <laughs> so what I thought it meant is to come before something. Yes, I would assume that. So, so you would also say that is what it means. Yeah. No. No? No. No, no. Also, do you think that precipitate is a verb, an adjective or a noun? The answer is yes. <laughs> so strap in, this is going to be a bit. What it actually means as a verb to cause an event or situation, typically one that is undesirable, to happen suddenly, unexpectedly or prematurely, to cause a substance to be deposited in solid form from a solution. As an adjective... Done, made, or acting suddenly or without careful consideration. As a noun, a substance precipitated from a solution. So, where does it come from as a verb? 1520s, to hurl or fling down from a precipice or a height. A back formation from precipitation or else from Latin precipitatus, past particle of precipitare, to throw or dive headlong, be hasty, from preceps, genitivus would be precipitis, Steep, headlong, head first, from pre, before, fourth, and caput, head. Wait, caput is head? C-A-P-U-T is the Latin word for head. Oh my god, because we use caput for dead. No, caput is broken in German as well, but that has nothing to do with the caput in Latin. I'm learning so much. So, earliest use in English is figurative, to hurl or cause someone to fall into some state or condition. Meaning to cause to happen suddenly or hurry the beginning off. And that is recorded in the 1620s. The chemical sense to cause to fall as a sediment to the bottom of a vessel is from the 1620s. An intransitive sense from the 1640s. The meteorological sense, also intransitive, is attested by 1863. So where does it come from as an adjective? Also, obviously, the same Latin base, but it is from circa 1600, meaning hasty, acting without deliberation. In the 1610s, hurled headlong, plunging or rushing down. In the 1650s, we have attested that it meant just hasty. And in the 1560s, we have once again chemistry. Any substance having been dissolved in a fluid falls to the bottom of the vessel on the addition of some other substance, producing the decomposition of the compound. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna have to listen to it again when I edit this because I cannot 
I'm going to have to write it down as I listen to it to completely comprehend what you're saying. And lastly, in meteorology, moisture condensed from vapor by cooling and deposited as rain in 1832. Wait, so maybe that's where I know the word from because I did like experiments at school. Yes, exactly. Cool. Finally something that I can probably understand. So precipitate actually meaning what will cause something that we all do not want is the same base word as for precipitation when rain comes down. Because we don't want that to happen. Apparently. It was so wild researching this word. And yes, I fully understand this needs to be read. Because holy shit, like this is nearly a page of explanation for stuff. So yes, most British word. I'm pretty sure I win with precipitate. <laughs> well, you win something for sure. Listen, my red lorry, yellow lorry. <laughs> I feel like it's a very typical approach for the two of us. Not gonna lie. Yeah, I don't think anyone is going to be surprised. <laughs> no one also will be surprised by the fact that it's now time for the facts and funds. Once again, there was myriads of information and I have put a good part of them in where they belong because they go really, really well with the tidbits that I saw myself. But I missed a few things and I didn't know a few things and so I keep those things in here. In a Xerophel's shop, lying on a pile of books, there can be found a copy of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novel, Feet of Clay. I did not find it. Oh no, I completely missed that. Newton says, you don't get tornadoes in England. This is not strictly true. England gets more tornadoes per square mile than the USA, but they are minor tornadoes, almost all F0 or F1, with a maximum speed of 110 miles per hour. But a tornado is a tornado, no matter if big or small, so... Newt is factually incorrect. Speaking of being factually correct, a shake is an informal unit of time equal to 10 nanoseconds. It is used in nuclear physics to conveniently express the timing of various events in a nuclear reaction, especially neutron reactions. The typical time required for one step in the chain reaction is of the order of one shake. And the chain reaction in a nuclear weapon is typically completed by 50 to 100 shakes. Like many nuclear units, it came to be adopted during the Manhattan Project of World War II. It was derived from the expression, two shakes of a lamb's tail, which indicates a very short time interval. So it's, it's the other way around. It's, oh my god! Given the fact that Terry worked with the energy board and everything, like everything is so beautifully interconnected, even on the meta level. Then there are two freeze frame moments that I did not do myself. A, because I didn't know the first one and B, because I could not decipher the second one. Lower Tadfield is supposed to be in Oxfordshire, yet Shadwell's map shows rural Buckinghamshire just outside Marlow. Sure, Oxfordshire. What? Ever. It's the Shire, like in the Hobbit. <laughs> okay. It's like Worcestershire. 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 Yeah, exactly. 
Secondly, Anathema has an index card with the prophecy of her encounter with Newt. White shots of the index card show handwritten annotations at the top of the card referring to a Japanese car. Those annotations are changed in subsequent close-up shots of the card. I cannot read her handwriting at all. It is absolutely terrible. It's worse than mine. <laughs> and this concludes the facts and funs for this time. Ooh, juicy segments this time. So much language fails already and we're just half an hour in. Ugh. Okay, well, I guess let's get into the previously on Armageddon. The end is nigh. The angel and the demon had a fight and broke up. Adam is finding his power, Anathema lost her book of prophecies but still has her card, Aziraphale found it and with it found Adam. Both sides want war and both sides are convinced they will win it. So we go into the episode and reality is changing all around and we start with Atlantis showing up and we learn about this with a very soft-spoken cruise captain who speaks in such a weird way that it completely confused the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, he's making an entry to a captain's log. Supposedly it's meant to sound like the old Star Trek Enterprise logs and first choice for this was actually William Shatner. Oh, God. So, yeah. I'm glad that it's not... <laughs> no. Oh, God. For you. But this time we actually hear the make it happen, make it real very, very clearly. So the voices are not evil per se. They just want him to use his power. It's just very scary, I suppose. Like, I find it scarier than when it was just a muffled noise. Because them saying, make it happen, make it real. It's just like... I mean, he's probably been hearing these voices all his life, so... Yes, but now they're becoming more pronounced. Yeah, because time is running out. It's just made me more creeped out. So, as well as... Adam becometh more creepy in this episode or actually becometh creepy in my eyes. The fact that he can or we can now distinguish what the voices are saying is becometh more creepy to me than having to hear the noise of multiple voices in behind. Because who is this saying this? Who are these voices? Where is it coming from? What do they want? The powers that be. Yeah, but what's the purpose? To make him come into his own. Creepy, creepy, creepy. Because the more he accidentally or subconsciously uses his power, the more powerful he seems to become. Well, we actually, after he wakes up and goes off with his friends into the forest, we get a Star Wars reference as well. Yeah, and it's very fitting, I think, that Pepper is very aggressive and a Star Wars fan, and Brian is the Whovian. So, apart from pop culture references, we get a very clear statement that things on the TV and internet can be made up, but magazines are real, which is so incredibly naive. But that is what Adam believes, and thus it is. Because what he says is true. And I said by the fact that he was creepy in the beginning and he is still creepy and he just like every scene that we see him in, he gets more so. Because he says these things with the, this is my world, which was the first time I said fucking creep. What I say is true. He says those things with a finality to them that makes them creepy. I actually agree in this episode that this is the case. But to me, it becomes only 
creepy the moment it starts becoming true, which is only now. And you can feel the power building up behind what he's saying. So each and every word, and more we are going to continue this episode, every word that he's going to say is going to become reality and therefore the truth. And he can feel the power behind it and he is leaning into it and it's becoming more from, to me, from subconsciousness, it's developing into consciousness and doing it on purpose, which when he was just saying that before and he didn't actually believe that he is making it so, to me that was just a children's thing and and this we've talked about immensely but now he is realizing somewhere in the back of his mind that with each word it becomes reality and that's creepy that's extremely creepy to me the statement by itself with now context is just as creepy the context just makes it worse basically (laughs) yeah we go back to the television and reality changing some more The TV spokesperson is saying strange times indeed. And she says that's not the only news we're hearing from the ocean, which makes me wonder if they fucked up some of the order of things when recording those scenes. Because the Kraken happens so much later in the episode. And so it makes me wonder what else do we hear from the ocean aside from the Kraken and Atlantis. Yeah. So I would love to know that. So let's think of that. Continuity mistake. Or we don't have all the information. No, that's that's not an option. So <laughs> I obviously had to pause and look at the shown social media post by Edna Wills 79 who has 536 followers and posted the picture of the high priest winning at the cruise. So go Edna, I'm very proud that she gets uh, all the the clout for posting this picture. There's so many followers. No, I'm pretty sure she's going to have like exponential higher number of followers after this news segment. Do you know what the game Quartz, Quartz, however it's pronounced, is that they're playing? And that No idea. Yes, you do. Listen up. A traditional game which involves the throwing of metal, rope or rubber rings over a set distance, usually to land over or near a spike, sometimes called a hop, mod or pin. Oh. The game of Quartz encompasses several distinct variations. And... Why are they playing that on a cruise ship, you might ask yourself? Deck quartz is a variant which is popular on cruise ships. The quartz are invariably made of rope as to avoid damaging the ship's deck, but there are no universally agreed standards or rules, partly because of the game's informal nature and partly because the game has to adapt to the shape and area of each particular ship it is played upon. Players take it in turns to throw three or four hoops at a target which usually, though not always, consists of concentric circles circles marked on the deck. The center point is called the jack. Occasionally this may take the form of a raised wooden peg, but more usually it is marked on the surface in the same way that the concentric circles are. Wow. The more you know. The more you know indeed. Oh my god. Uh, Yeah, I don't (laughs) think I've ever played this, but I certainly know the game. Basically the same as uh, throwing horseshoes. Yeah, I know. I've never played that either. You have (laughs) never thrown horseshoes? Never thrown horseshoes. I have. You can barely find horseshoes these days anyway. Where are all the the anvils? Sorry, that is a that is a Gilmer Girls reference that I'm sure went completely over your head. All right, so now we get the intro song. 
And right afterwards, we go into one of the parks in London where Gabriel seems to go on a morning jog, Saturday morning jog. Why? I don't know. Is it, is it just so he can be inconspicuous in meeting? No, but Aziraphale wants to meet him. Gabriel is doing that just by himself because he wants to. He's weird. I don't understand his ways. Taking care of the temple that he does not sully with human food? Probably. I don't really understand. Why does? Why can't he run in heaven? Is it because other angels would laugh at him? No, because they use segways in heaven. Did you not see that in heaven? Oh my god, I did completely miss that. That is terrifying and makes complete sense because angels are garbage. Yep, they're always. Like, no matter what show we're watching, angels suck. It's great. And then I got completely distracted by Xerophil trying to keep up with Gabriel. And it's just like... Oh, it's just so cute and adorable. And then when they stop and have the conversation, best minimalist cosplay ever. Just a gray sweatsuit with angel wings. The wings on the shirt are beautiful. Excellent. And I want to wear this at some point as a cosplay. If you ever get to meet John Hamm, this would be a great cosplay. Ooh. Yes. Fuck yeah. Imagine Sean would do Neil Gaiman convention and he would bring John Ham. I would die. Maybe finally I would be uh, an inappropriate fangirl. <laughs> Because have you... <laughs> One day! Have you seen that jaw? I mean... <laughs> I mean... He is owning this character. I mean, he is making it his own because as far as I remember, Gabriel does not exist in the book. I am gonna have to reread, but it's possible. I cannot unsee the fact that Gabriel has purple eyes. So every time we see oh, him now, fuck. I am focusing and zooming in on that. The other angels do not. I did not notice that again. God damn it. Now, once you see it, can't be unseen. But for me... The best part about this scene is the discrepancy between the battle-ready body of Gabriel and the softest of the soft angels, Zerophel. The softest teddy bear. Who cannot keep up with the running and who has a tiny little cut and who has definitely got soft and is so adorable. So it is very sweet. I, I love the juxtaposition of those two very different angels. Maybe Gabe went for a run because he wants to keep in shape. Which apparently is a necessity. Which is surprising. Like I would not expect angels to have the necessity to be keeping in shape. I mean, they could just miracle their own body, right? But that would be... I would think, yes. Frivolous use of miracles then, though. Um, that we know that Xerophil was punished for at one point. Yeah, but they have a war to win. So, kind of thing. They're the good guys, Lena. They can do this. Are they? Shh. It's fine. We haven't mentioned the flaming sword thing that is about to bite a Xerophil in the butt again. So it seems to become or to be a running joke throughout the entirety of the show that people bring up the, did you have a flaming sword? You didn't give this away, right? So I feel the sword has to show up again simply because of the fact that it keeps being referenced. It's like yep, fucking it's Chekhov's, Chekhov's gun. Yeah, exactly. So the flaming sword is our Chekhov's gun. So it being constantly referenced and constantly brought up, I feel like there has not been a single episode where it's not mentioned. So let's see, A, if it shows up the next episode as well, at least mention-wise, and if it does show up in the end. But that is all I have for jogging in the park. 
So now we get something that I don't recall being in the book and it threw me a little bit when I watched this, but also I kind of became to love it. We get a little bit of a backstory on the delivery driver. He has a life. He has a wife. Yeah, it's a tiny little scene that he gets. He loves his wife and he has this little... Do you know what he does not get? What does he not get? A name. Leslie. Really? In the credits he does not have a name. (laughs) She calls him Leslie. Well, in the credits he's just called the delivery man. Oh no! That's a shame. No, uh, she calls him Leslie. Oh, I missed that. Okay, shame on me. I thought she calls him Tiger. Oh no, she calls him Tiger at the end of the scene, but at the beginning of the scene, I think she says something like, Leslie, come back to bed or something like that. Okay, I missed that. Sorry. That's okay. I named the scene Leslie the Delivery Driver, so... Now, we jump to heaven momentarily and we get to see Michael uh, discovering that the angel and the demon are... In cahoots! In cahoots! And... Michael is being very proactive and very back-channel-y. Which makes sense, I feel. For Michael, it does make sense. The fact that he is not the original owner of the flaming sword in this alliteration is kind of weird to me, but also it would make me understand better that he has it out for Aziraphale. No, but don't you remember Aziraphale mentioned in a previous episode that you do not want Michael to be angry with you. So Michael is one of the scary angels. And so obviously he is the black ops guy who has the direct connection to the other side. So it all fits very well together. It fits very well, yeah. But when he said, I'm going to explore the back channels and Gabe goes like, we don't have any back channels. Of course we don't. What does he mean by, by back channels? And then we get the phone call and I'm like... Oh, wow. I also love the fact that Michael is still Michael, but played by a female actor. Angels are technically... They're sexless, genderless, everything less, unless they choose to have one, I'm pretty sure. So, uh, I mean, miracle is a miracle is a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, can you just imagine? Wee, now you have a penis. Wee, now you don't. Oh, that would be so (laughs) fucking practical. Oh, it's a miracle. Now I have three peni. Seriously, it would be so practical. I want to go to the festival. Now I have a penis. Yeah, okay. Um. Uh. <laughs> All right. So um, we, <laughs> we see Michael do this. Oh wait, what does he do? <laughs> we were still talking he has about a phone. Yeah, we were still talking about penis. So okay. So he has a phone. He's he's finishing the call, and he does something that I find very very cool, and that is blowing on the phone to hang up. And I find that like really, really cool. For me, the cool part was that we now cut over into hell and apparently the person Michael was talking to, which in turn makes that his counterpoint in hell is Leaker. So Leaker is way higher up the food chain than I initially assumed. Yeah, same for Haster, to be honest. Like, Haster is the Duke of Hell that we find this episode specifically. So it just feels like they way higher up than you would imagine. Therefore, Crowley must be quite high up as well. It also makes sense because they were handed the fucking Antichrist to hand it over to Crowley, who is this poster boy of everything. But yeah, in my brain, I was just like, yeah, no, they're just two regular demons. No. No, 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 no. The men with influence and penises. <sighs> influence. <laughs> so, Crowley 
is now running home. And we could assume this is quite soon after he had the altercation with his love. You mean when they broke up? <laughs> when they broke up. Oh my God, I, can't, I still can't. And he is dead set on to leave Earth. Regardless of what's happening, he's going to leave. And he does this. Th- this whole scene is really, really good. I really enjoyed the way he's looking for a place to go. So like he first grabs the globe and goes through it. Oh, Atlantis didn't exist yesterday. It exists now. And it just kind of all flows with the apocalypse coming. The best part about the globe, though, is when he tries to flick it to the side and it just bounces back. It makes you wonder why. <laughs> So this is, of course, where we get the Gallifrey reference after he says Alpha Centauri and then he rips out the pages, which is very rude of him, but also very Crowley. And then he starts talking at God because I only ever ask questions, he says. And it makes me wonder, what question did he ask? Like, what is this tree? Can I give the fruits to Adam and Eve? No, like that would be obvious. Those are already answered. Oh, no, not really answered, but like... He didn't really wait for an answer, just asked a question and was like, ha, no answer, I'll do what I want. He had already fallen when he gave the apple to Eve. Oh yeah, I, I would assume, hmm, what are the questions actually? That's the point, because everything around the tree and the rules was made explicit, so that's not a question. So I do actually really wonder what are the questions that basically caused him to fall or to be banished or to be whatever. It's very curious for me. It Fells really well with his character to just be the one who asks questions. And it also fits very well with him now basically accusing God with, I see what you're doing and you're testing them, but you do not test them until destruction. And it's very Crowley to be like, yo, what you're doing makes no sense. You might be God and Almighty, but fuck you and your great plan. So I'm very with Crowley. Ineffable plan. No, here in this scene calls it the great plan. But is it me or I pose myself a question here. Does this mean that he cares about humanity because he doesn't want them destroyed? Or is it just him trying to save humanity so he doesn't lose his way of living and he doesn't lose his boyfriend? When we had the flashback of the 6,000 years of friendship between Aziraphale and Crowley, it was very obvious to me that Crowley has no joy in senseless cruelty because that is how he comments on several of the scenes. So while he might not care on a deep level about humanity, he finds no joy and sense in the senseless destruction and cruelty that is about to happen to all of humanity. So it's not a, oh, I love them so much that I want them to be saved, but rather a, well, just let them be so that my boyfriend and I can remain here and enjoy the finer things of life, basically. So that's the thing. He, throughout the 6,000 years, commented on the, like, especially the flood scene. Yeah. No, you're right. That's a great way to put that. Thank you. And now we get to start the next scene with the most beautiful wordplay of this episode, I think, where God is telling us all about pollution and finding them on the side of the river and everything like that. And she is describing Leslie coming to this river with Maud to spoon and on one occasion 
fork. Oh my god. Yes, the spoon and fork one was very, very funny. The scene did get me with the jump scare in the beginning. He looks left, right, left, and then he takes a step, and then you have the lorry sound, and then he's behind the car, and goes like, bloody lorries. <sighs> I was like, yeah. Lorry, lorry. So, yeah, they did get me. And I did not mind the pun with the spooning and forking. Isn't it so sweet, though? It's just a really nice way to describe it. And on one special occasion, as she says. So now we get to meet Pollution. Yeah, Pollution is called Chalky on the thingy. Why? I don't know. Okay. What? Good. The package is addressed to Chalky. Oh, I completely missed that. So, why? Who? What? I'm so confused. The fact that Pestilence gets replaced by Pollution after Pestilence retires and then uh, Pestilence came back strong in the last couple of years, I find it slightly ironic and funny. For us, I mean, in the real world. Yeah, Pollution did its best. Like one last ride. No, Pollution did its best to make sure that the adversaries of Pestilence, aka Penicillin and Co. would be just as polluting as everything else so that Pestilence could make a strong comeback. Yeah. It's like one last time. I have a question though. Why does pollution get a crown? Because the sword for war and the scale for famine make sense. But why a crown for either pestilence or pollution makes no sense for me. Hmm. I don't know. I'm sure that there is some sort of a biblical reference to it. Yeah, but that's something that I should know and I don't. And that is why I'm like, why? I don't know. But all shall be revealed in good time, my good Lena. Is it? I actually genuinely... Genuinely don't know. Okay, because I want to put that on the question list because it makes no sense to me. Of course, the effect is super, super cool with they're taking the crown and then it turns black and everything. But it's like, what? Also, the tiny tidbit that when Pollution unwraps their package, they throw the package into the river was very, very beautiful. Like, it's this tiny detail, but it's mwah. Beautiful. It's excellent, yeah. Next up, death. And thankfully, IMDb deciphered the writing on the note that he reads because I could not read it. So he unfolds a paper and it says, Destination, death. Location, everywhere. Package, say to him, come and see. Yeah. It makes sense, but I could not decipher it by myself. So thank you, IMDb, for clearing that up and... I felt so incredibly bad for Leslie in this moment because like he reads the note and then his face changes. Like he knows what is about to happen and he leaves the goodbye note for Maud, which makes it even more sad. And then of course we have the repetition of him stepping into the street, a lorry coming out of nowhere, him being like nearly got me and then of course he He actually yeah. did. So this is a moment where my head kind of, and I'm pretty sure this is kind of a thing in general, is that this is the same death as the Discworld death. Because the way it's portrayed and the way it sounds and the way it looks feels exactly like the Discworld death would, which would mean that the all-universe would have the same death. And that just makes so much sense to me. It's, it's a balm for my soul, so please don't destroy it. You're about to. Of course, because people have been asking who wrote what for several parts of Good Omens. And this death and this scene with death was written by Neil because Terry had done it before and Neil wanted to do one himself. 
doesn't necessarily mean that it's not the same character, though. If it had been the same character, the subtitles would need to be in caps because the Discworld Death only speaks in caps. That is not the case. It is not the case, but remember, this is Amazon we're talking about. The subtitles are shit. If it was the Discworld Death, it would be made very clear, I'm pretty sure. I found extremely confusing that Death does not get an item. Is it because Death is... Special or death is the most active because the other three are also active. Why does death not need an activation item to be summoned? Because death is everywhere. It just needs to be told, hey, it's happening. You don't need to be summoned because you are already everywhere. Yeah, but so is pollution. Not necessarily. Pollution still has to physically get somewhere, while death you can only approach. As we could see, poor Leslie had to die for it. Death is there if someone dies. Mm, Unsatisfying. To me, I found it also weird, but kind of as a satisfying explanation. Death does not need to be summoned. It's just there. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. We go to Ted Field (laughs) and the kids show up and they need to know everything, which I like this approach. Like the, okay, things are fucked, things are weird, something is afoot, let's go to the random weird witch in Jasmine Cottage and have her explain everything. And give us more magazines. Well, that is Adam's approach. The others are mostly like, what the fuck is going on? I really like the them, I have to say. I'm not a fan of Adam, but I really like the them. Especially Wensley, when she's like uh, with the with the sweets. <laughs> yeah. And the other two go like, no, not, not taking uh, candy from witches. And Wensley's like, yeah, I do. And then everybody does. As I wrote in my notes, Wensley's love of chocolate saves all awkward situations. <laughs> Wensley is very precious. I love him. We have a lot of reality changing things that I did not keep in their own scenes coming up. I just kept them in the bigger scenes because now we have in my opinion the first transition that reminded me of lucifer for some reason with the radio i loved this transition so much transition and transmission (laughs) we had quite a few of those in lucifer we commented on those quite frequently but so far in good omens it didn't really feel like we had especially nifty transitions between scenes and now we have this with the radio keeping talking and then we're in the car so that was really really well done and because I'm doing my rereading the radio interview that we hear is word for word it's verbatim from the book because I've just read that part I love that so IMDB time which I did not know, but it's very relevant to this scene where Newt sits in the car. What Newt is listening to is an interview with James Naughty, an electric board spokesman, about the missing nuclear material from the power station. The spokesman is voiced by Paul Kay. Kay played Terry Pratchett in a documentary, Terry Pratchett, Back in Black, from 2017. And Pratchett was once a press officer for the electricity industry. The voice Kay uses for his role as the spokesman in this episode is his rendition of Terry's voice in the documentary, meaning that Pratchett can be heard in the series. Aww. You're welcome. So touched. Okay, now Newt is coming to pick up his suit of armor. Armor of Righteousness. Armor of Righteousness, thank you. I'm like, no, it wasn't a suit of armor. It is 9 a.m. He's coming to pick up his armor of righteousness and he receiveth a pendulum of discovery, thumbscrew, firelighters, bell, book, and a candle. A fucking birthday cake 
candle. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's a candle. Candle is a candle is a candle. Yeah. And finally, gets a pin, which essentially it's this is this is the one that they poke witches with to see if they're witches or not. And these are all interesting items. I would love to know how the pendulum of discovery works. Well, probably as well as the candle and everything. I love the ring the bell, light the candle, read the book. There's no time for light reading. Like, wait, what? Also, Newt should have brought her back. Yeah, excellent. So Newt is on the road and... The things that we heard of in the previous episodes are becoming a reality. So we get to see Tibetan people sitting in a hall. He gets pulled over by alien ship. You would have found it horrifying because the two Tibetan people are talking with each other and they're like, yeah, well, I had a job. Like, I was there and now I'm here. And it's like, okay, so they were ripped from their lives and now they're underground people that have to burrow through the ground. This is terrifying shit. It is absolutely terrifying. So funniest part about the entire reality changing thing is Newt reports dutifully back and he goes like, there are aliens and Shadow is just like, how many nipples do they have? Because as many faults as he has, he is very focused. He's not an alien hunter, he's a witch hunter. Focus on the wrong things, apparently. Well, not really. He has one job and he does this one job and I think that's enough. I mean, if a alien ship won't skew you away from witch hunting, nothing will. Yeah, and nothing in his entire life has. We go back to Tedfield and I love Pepper because she's basically anti-everything. And then she loves it at the same time. Like she she goes like, oh no, no bah, 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 bah. I want one. <laughs> it's like, I want to be one. It's like... <laughs> Ah, Pepper, I feel you. Yeah. She gets really annoying but lovable at the same time. And that's a special skill to write a character like that. I love that. But they do agree that they have to save all whales. Which is ridiculous. We're gonna save all the whales then. All of them. Uh Uh-huh. And how they do that is... How Adam does it is quite special, I have to say. I did not realize that was how he's saving whales until we get the news report. He raises the kraken from the floor, from the ocean floor, and the kraken starts targeting whaling ships. Well, scientific vessel thingies. So, we go into hell, and for the first time I noticed that Ligur's eye and the chameleon's skin change colors in concert. They always have the same color. Ah, interesting. That would confirm with what a chameleon does. So he is more of a chameleon than we have thought originally. It's cute, kind of, that his eyes are apparently connected to the chameleon. Is it cute or is it creepy? (laughs) Well, to me, that is cute. I like it. It got a little heart in my notes. Aw, adorbs. Yeah, I didn't actually notice that, no. You're not really focusing on the eyes of people. I am not, no. I uh, That is kind of my downfall. I don't do that in uh, real life either. Oh, I can't do it in real life. I will look people in the eye while talking to them and then instantly forget what color their eyes are or shit like that. Right? Sometimes I remember, but it's very, very, very rare. I could not even tell you what your fucking eye color is and you're sitting across from me behind a camera. <laughs> I mean, yes, but I'm wearing glasses and I'm quite far away from the camera, so you wouldn't be able to. I see you frequently and I still could not tell you what your fucking eye color is. So, no, don't, don't, I'm not gonna look. Go away, that's creepy. That's creepy. (laughs) Your face is creepy. Yes, which is why I'm not putting it that close to the camera, because I'm nice. 
It is hazel. Is it hazel? Hazel. What the fuck is hazel? As far as I know, I've been told recently, I, I only found out recently that this is how it is called. It is essentially brown are my pupil and then it goes from green to blue. So you could not make up your mind and you have all the colors. I have all the colors because I am so adversile. Adversile? What? Versatile? Yes, that's the word. <laughs> there you go. I am versatile. Sometimes I'm like, what the fuck is she Like, what does she mean? English is a thing. Yeah. Adversile is something though, is it? Not really sure where you're going with that, but mine are brown and very brown and nothing else. <laughs> In a way that prevents success or development, <laughs> harmfully or unfavorably. I feel like that. I mean, you are also that, but that is not a reason why you have hazel eyes. You did in a sentence. Her self-confidence was adversely affected for years to come. Yes. yes. Okay, let's continue on. We go back to Tedfield and we see a prophecy. And this is prophecy 3819, though the one in 19 is typed as an uppercase I. And it reads, when Robin's blue chariot inverted be three wheels in the sky, a man with bruises be upon your better, aching his head for willow fine, a man who testeth with pin, yet his heart be clean, yet seed of mine own undoing, take the means of flame from him for to make right certain, together you shall be until the end of that is to come. The spelling of Agnes is atrocious, by the way. I mean, it's called Old English, so get off that high horse, Lena. <laughs> so sometimes I'm not sure if it's Old English or if she's just bad. Why not both? Yeah. There are several handwritten annotations on this card. I could not make out any. According to IMDb, one of them says Japanese car question mark. And the car that Newt writes is a Reliant Robin, which is a Japanese car. And the three-wheeled Robin is infamously prone to roll over, but at less than 970 pounds total, it's very easy to be rolled back up. <laughs> do you know or do we know why is the car called Dick Turpin? No, but it's a thing that has come up for quite a few times and has not been answered yet. Not in the show. I believe that it is answered in the book, but I don't remember what it is. It will probably be answered. We still have two more episodes. Well, we'll see because I am curious and I do want to know Newt. Tell me, Newton is lucky that the them find him after the crash. Well, he only crashes because Adam made the Tibetan ground people real. I mean, yes, obviously. But to be fair to Adam, he did not do that consciously. Yeah, I know. I don't blame Adam. He's a victim of the circumstances just as much. It's still... Newt is lucky that the same people who inadvertently caused his crash also find him. Because it all was meant to happen because Agnes said it would. There's no such thing as free will. Yes, we're not getting into that on this show. Not yet anyway. We might eventually. Oh, if you want to know more about free will, there is a very lengthy bonus episode that I did on, I feel like, the last episode of Lucifer in season six. Believe so, yeah. Yeah. And there I talk why free will does not exist. So if you want to know more about that, check it out. Join the Patreon. 
I love the fact that Anathema has a phone alarm set for Witchfinder showing up. I would guess that she would have a phone alarm for all the prophecies. For at least the ones that relate directly to her. Yeah, exactly. So, yes, this is perfect. Technology making its way into the life of ancient prophecies. The nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter. Yeah, so she is expecting him. And the kids comment on that. The, it's like you knew we were coming. I did. Creepy woman. Now, we go to the fields of Megiddo. And first of all, all the demons, all the low-level demons, are played by the same person, which is excellent. Because it just shows that they are replaceable. They are disposable. So uh, one dies, the next one takes place, and it's like nothing ever happened. Well, the third one does look kind of... Uh, Beshoveled. Frazzled, yeah. So I felt for the... Copy-paste demons, I have to say, but... I know. They're doing so well. Also, I have to say, Huster is such a mood with the I hate jokes and then later on him telling the joke <laughs> himself. Also, just personal note, what's a photo op cracked me up way more than it should because you and I know exactly what a photo op is. So him being like, what's a photo op? And then going like, do you know what a selfie is? No. Crowley invented them? Like, okay. And dead now. That was beautiful. No, but as gross and annoying as Hester is, he's also very much a mood. Yeah. If we're kind of learning the details of what to do around Hester not to die, rule number one, don't tell jokes. Rule number two, don't mention Crowley. And yeah, we should probably write those down if we ever meet Hester. Well, at the end of this episode, he's stuck on a answering machine so I, I think we might be kind of safe so nothing else happens yet in the fields of Megiddo so we go back to Tadfield yep so we get a time frame we have five hours and 48 minutes to the end of the world and this is the moment where I find Adam not just creepy but proper terrifying which also coincides with him seeing a depiction of the devil for probably the first time in his life so it kind of, because like you said, it's not his fault, but it kind of coincides so much that it has to be deliberate that him turning full asshole right after he stares at the picture of his dad, of the fucking devil, it makes sense. Because so far, all of his influence has actually been neutral to positive. So as annoying as some of his habits are and as creepy as some of his statements were, nothing he has done so far was problematic or bad or frightening or anything. But when he turns around to the them and he goes like, I didn't say you could leave. Like this is the first time that he's rationally scary. Yes. And happening right after staring at the fucking devil... Imagine how bad he would be if he had actually been raised by demons and everything. Oh, God. Fuck. Yeah, that is a terrifying thought. Yeah, the whole I didn't say you could leave moment is holy fuck. It is a lot. And I love the fact that the them, they are catching up on that things are happening. And they are talking about it amongst themselves. Of course, it instantly bites them in the butt because creepy, creepy Adam shows up. But the fact that they feel safe enough with each other that they actually talk about it just shows that they have a great friendship outside of the, oh, we're Adam's posse and la 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 la. Yeah, 
their kids. There are obviously things that make the friendship a little stronger at times and a little weaker at times. But in the end of the day, they're, they're another day, day older. older. Yes! One of us! One of us! Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> they are friends and they will hold each other accountable, which is something that they try to do at the end of the episode again. However, at that point, Adam is going slightly off rails. No, slightly, slightly. Just a tiny little bit. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Before we get into that conversation, though, we go back to Megiddo and... Boy, I forgot that Nick Offerman actually shows up in person. My first note is in person this time. <laughs> Yay, I added. I only now realized that the mom is also a Doctor Who actor. She was in the Zygon Invasion episode. Oh. She did feel familiar, but also that being said, BBC does have about 10 actors altogether and four umbrellas and three chairs. So, uh... yeah, but yet another Doctor Who thingy that I had not realized. Good. Sorry. More Fields of Megiddo. I only have the Hustler La Vista comment because I very much (laughs) doubt that Hustler ever fucking watched The Terminator. So it makes no sense that he would use that. I think that he's heard it somewhere in hell. Oh my God. And felt like it's a great name to use as an alias. So he has no idea of the relevance. Yeah, that works for me. I can live with that. Yes. Hester Lovest. It's it's actually so funny. No! The way he stands there all gross and demon-like and goes, My name is Hester Lovista. And then Professor Lovista, I mean, wow. (laughs) I know he plays a conservative politician, but did he have to play him that dumb? Yes, he had, but oh, wow. Oh my god, it's so funny. Now, all else I have on this moment is that it is extremely awkward. And when Huster comes up to Warlock and Warlock tells him that he smells like poo multiple times. Oh my god. I applaud the upbringing that he's gotten because holy shit. The balls on the kid. He is such a fucking unlikable little shit. Yes, I love that for him. So we do now realize on the side of hell that everything is fucked. And thus we go into the next scene. We are in the cinema. Now I know what we're watching there. Thanks to you paying attention. (laughs) Saturday morning fun time. Yeah, I did not catch that. But... The question still remains, why is Crowley in a cinema? It makes no sense to me. I agree. I think that he might just be, you know, like trying to find somewhere quiet to think through his next move. Well, he is alone in the cinema, except for one person sitting a few rows in front of him, apparently sleeping. What? See, that's something I didn't notice. Yes, there is someone sitting there with their head on their hand. And I only paid attention to that because according to IMDb, that's a cameo. And that is Neil Gaiman. Oh my god! And I went through this scene like 20 times, going frame by frame by frame by frame. I could not for 100% sure say if it's Neil. It does look like him, but also you can't really make him out in detail. But he has the unruly black hair that Neil has and it would be a match. Okay, that's actually excellent. And I completely didn't notice that. 
Amazing. And as we were talking about at the beginning, yes, it is giving Happy Tree Friends vibes. <laughs> 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 the we're going to put a link to the opening music. Oh, we're just going to find a random episode on YouTube. I'm... Yeah, we're going to find an episode. With the opening so that you know what the fuck we're going on about. Because if you don't know this, you have missed a very important, essential... Part of our childhoods? Part of our childhoods and things that probably... Formative experience? Will explain a lot <laughs> about us as human beings. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Happy tree friends. <laughs> Now, let's go to Tatfield. So, I love Newton so damn much. He's just so adorable. So, Anathema hands him the prophecy that regards to him. And then she hands him the prophecy about why she is in Tatfield. And he reads it once. And I didn't write the exact wording down. Do you have it? Where the hoggest speck ends, the young beast will take the world. And Adam's line will end in fire and darkness. This card does not have a number for the prophecy. Thank you. Uh, he reads this once and he immediately connects the address and Adam Young. Question. Does this mean that Newt is immune to the protection around Adam? I don't 100% think so. I think that just because he has the address and the name, he is able to piece this together because he doesn't realize that he's talking about the Antichrist. But Anathema actively tries to be like, no, this can't be, this can't... Like, she is trying to contradict what he's saying. So I honestly think that Newt, either because he's a witchfinder or because of his technologically impairedness, somehow is actually immune to the protection power around Adam. Yeah, he's very analog. He doesn't do any like extra special things and those extra special things do not have power all over him, which makes him the perfect person to save the humanity from Armageddon. Ah, oh, God, this just makes me love him more. It's so random because explicitly he is so normal because Crowley says that the protection is against occult forces, right? So Newt is so vanilla, he's so normal Aww. that Adam is not protected against him because he is not an occult force. I love that so much. I just realized that. Ha! Yes! And we get a slight time jump. So Anathema says the world will end in four hours and 15 minutes. So that means that he's been there for hour and a half, which actually will help us. We, we are kind of jumping in time a little bit back and forth, especially with the next couple of scenes. So we go from the cottage into the woods where creepy, creepy Adam has just waited for his friends. And just like they feared, he doesn't let them go. Instead, they have to follow him. And while you can see that they are not happy to walk behind him, they do walk, but they have still verbal power to be like, yo dude, not cool. We don't want this. It really hones that in, that he holds a power over their physical bodies, that they are protesting vocalists so much. And he keeps saying in various different variants, it's our job to make it start again. And I kind of wonder where does that come from in Adam's brain? Armageddon is so far being framed as the end 
to it all. Where does the information come from that he is starting something? Well, if you think about it, he is starting something from the point of view that if hell wins over heaven, everything will be hell. So in theory, it could be that. It could be that information that he is going to be enforcing his father's will, essentially. Therefore, he will restart the humanity under his father's rule or under his own rule. But the way he phrases it and the way I understood it, it was like basically him resetting humanity with him and his friends as the basically new Adam and Eve's. Or Eve and Adams, given that we only have Pepper. So it's kind of like, where are you getting that from, Adam? That wasn't none of your magazines. And that also does not really fit with what the voices have whispered so far. See, this is something that I would probably connect to what's happened in uh, the fields of Megiddo. Because when Hustler then comes to uh, Crowley as a cartoon, he says, the boy does not have a dog. He knows nothing of the great plan or he knows nothing of what's, uh, what's about to happen. So they expect him to know what to do when they bring him to the thing. So he has some inherent knowledge. Okay. Yeah, there should be some sort of a knowledge of him leading the Armageddon. And like he even then later mentions that others are coming. Okay, so he has inherent knowledge of the great plan. Okay, good. That explains it. Thank you. Now we go to London, and before we go into the scene, I did not notice this myself, it was pointed out on IMDb, but then I saw it, and now I can't unsee it. Crowley's license plate of the car reads, Nia truck, and it is curtain backwards. Okay. I don't know why, but it's correct. I noticed that it says something, I couldn't decipher it because I was like, ah, that's Lena job. Yes, but I don't know why curtain. Maybe we'll learn eventually. Or maybe it's a book reference that we don't remember. Yep, so we'll see. Now, babies. Crowley's first thought after being discovered is Azarifal. It truly shows that he has been in this for way longer than Azarifal. He says, you are so smart. For someone so smart, how can you be so stupid? How can somebody as clever as you be so stupid? (laughs) <laughs> it is so perfect because yes, Azarifal is being very disconnected with reality currently. He is very naive. And even with everything that he's been told multiple times by the angels and everything around him and the angels wanting the Armageddon to happen, which he's been told multiple times, he still thinks that if he contacts God, she will stop it for some reason. And I don't understand why. Where is this strong belief coming from? Because he has to believe that they are the good guys. I don't know. It's, I yes, I get that. But like also just, I'm with Crowley on this. Oh, same. But the problem is that Zerafel was not even able to say the word disobey. And there is not that many options for his mind to go. Because either he can't disobey because he is with the good guys and so it is okay that he can't disobey because he is with the good guys. Because that means he is also good. But if his side is not the good side, because there are no good sides, because everybody fucking sucks, and he doesn't disobey, that means he's bad. But 
if he's with the bad guys, because there are only bad guys, then he has to disobey, and that is incredibly scary for him. So he is literally between a rock and a hard place, and the easiest way, which is very human of him, is to be in fucking denial. Yeah, I suppose. Denial, we're back at it. Yes, knee deep or hip deep. Did you notice that Crowley keeps calling him Angel? Like in this scene and in the few other scenes in the last episode, it doesn't even say Azuravel, he says Angel. I know, I love it so much. He dries off and the random passerby. The tiny random passerby. He's not even up to Azuravel's shoulder. He comes up to Azuravel and goes, oh, you're better off without him. I've been there, buddy. And it's just like, this is just a further proof that this is a love story. Come on, people who refuse to see that. How do you not see that? This is literally a relationship. Come on, guys. Also, in my opinion, it makes it worse because now we have external confirmation that this was a breakup. So it's much harder to deny that it's a breakup because someone external, unconnected to this, witnessed it and saw it happen, you know? And that makes it more real. I don't like it. Yeah, however, Crowley is on his way out. Well, first he's on his way into his apartment. Did you notice the placement of the statue in the hallway gives him wings for a few seconds? No, I did not notice that and I love that. At the end of the hallway, he has a a bird-like statue and he has to walk down the hallway. And so for a very few seconds, he has wings. That is adorable. And we are back to the Mona Lisa drawing. Yes, and behind the Mona Lisa, we have a safe and... For the life of me, I could not make out the safe combination because I was sure it was going to be like a relevant number combination. I could not make it out. I tried and I did not find it. (laughs) Ah, well. So the fail safe. Yes. The little insurance that Crowley was trying to get for many, many years. And that he did get. Well, that was the first gift of the relationship, right? That was where the relationship started in that car, right? It's when Aziraphale acknowledges and says, you go too fast for me, Crowley. Yes. Anyway, I feel like that thermos with the holy water was like, this is the show that we are indeed in a relationship because I do love you too. So Aziraphale's love language is giving presents. Giving holy water, yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Good. Okay, so he gets all nicely done up in protective gear, which, yes, makes sense. And he manages to put the bucket on top of the door. Impressive to balance that without having a a ladder or a step stool or anything. I could not put stuff on doors without them. (laughs) And we have, of course, Haster and Ligor showing up. And Ligor walks in front. And so obviously he's the first one to come through the door. And that's all that we will ever see of Ligor. Because holy water disintegrates not just his body, but also his soul, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. My reaction to Haster's face after. The face or the sounds? He makes such a screeching. Both was ha 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 Huster, which may uh, amused me. Anyway, oh god, if you saw Lina's face, it's she's so disappointed with me. Anyway, Huster. <laughs> I enjoyed Huster freaking out because he is the screeching. The... <laughs> Sorry, dear listeners, for your ears. And I think that Crowley should have kept a glove on. 
to make that spray bottle bluff a little bit more believable. Yeah. Also, question, why not simply put a little bit of holy water in that and wear a glove and then simply get rid of both of them? I don't think he had time for that. Like, it was very, very last minute, everything he's done. Good point. Yeah, and he always has the plant mister at hand anyway for his plants. So... We have this wonderful conversation with the Haha, it was all a test, the Dark Council. Oh god, the theatrics of that moment. Yeah, and Hester once again falls for it, at least for a few seconds, which is all that Crowley needs. So now we get this god explanation insert with the how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That is an actual thing. And I did not know that. And there's a Wikipedia page. And so I linked it in my notes because it's pseudo-theological discussions that may or may not have happened a few centuries ago. Why in the first place? Why? It's all in the wiki page. Read up on it. Basically, it's weird church people. Because what else? But with Within the God explanation, God explanation scene insert, we have the fact that Xerophil learned dancing in a discreet gentleman's club. And I'm sorry, that's so gay. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, th- that was a thing. But if you tell me that you went to a discreet gentleman's club, then I'm going to assume that you went to a gay club. Not at that time, but yeah. At that time, yes. I'm pretty sure that was for gay men. Dancing with other gay men. Okay. I think that that came a little bit later. So this is supposed to be in like 18th century, 1800s, right? We had secret gay clubs for as long as the Christianity made it a problem being gay. Well, maybe I'm wrong and a discreet gentleman club says something very different, but I wait to be corrected. So I couldn't really tell, but when she starts talking about demons, is one of them silhouettes Crowley? Probably, yeah. Yeah, good. Nara. Because one of the silhouettes has like Crowley hair, so I wasn't 100% sure, but I wasn't studying it very carefully. So it is entirely possible that it is not, but also that it is. So explanation is done, and then we see that Crowley actually calls himself, which I found very confusing until, of course, the end of the scene, where it's like, ah, okay, now we're on the answering machine, yaddy, 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 now it all makes sense. And of course, Hester commenting with, your snake is duh. It's very funny. Also, the fact that he is now trapped on the answering machine with Azeraphal's voice saying, I know where the Antichrist is, over and over and over. Poor Hester, seriously. I mean, he's a demon and he's a dick, but does he really deserve this? Yes. (laughs) No! So what we get now is I was starting questioning a lot of things. Like, why did Azrifel chose this specific moment to call Crowley? What changed? What happened? And now we get the 28 minutes earlier. A mini flashback, which is very weird. And this is the explanation of the timings, which I was very happy with. Thank you very much. It's basically the same thing happening, but in Angel. Yes. We saw it in Demon. Now we see it in Angel. And he is confronted by Michael and Soxtiel. No, what's his name? Sandalphon? Sandalphon, yeah. And Uriel, right? And Uriel, yes. And Sandalphon is the one who punches him in his gut. Yes. The aggressive asshole. In the soft gut. It is soft, soft gut. And Michael references your boyfriend. Because now they know that they've been seeing each other behind everybody's back. But I like the... The breakup was acknowledged by external presence and now their relationship is being acknowledged by external presence. So it's all real. I love it. So 
they fly away because they hear the trumpets. Which is so ridiculous. Like, seriously, they were just about roughing Aziraphale up. And then they're like, oh, trumpets, gotta go. Why is he called to arms? Aziraphale just says, bad angels. But it's so hard for him to say even that. Yeah, I know, which is the graduation that we're gonna come to in a bit, but... Oh, he's trying so hard. He is, indeed. And back to Tutfield we go. And we have one of my favorite Pepper moments when she listens to Adam talk and then she goes, as a mother of unborn generations, I'm against that. And I'm like, yes, girl, you tell him. I love that Adam's friends are so uh, versatile. We learned a new word today. <laughs> Because this is something that essentially Azeraphal and Crowley were kind of trying to achieve with Warlock to give him like an even spread upbringing. But Adam got that naturally. So his friend is a raging feminist pepper. It's the, well, actually, Wensley. It's the uh, very dirty and grimy Brian. You know, it's a little bit of everything that he has been surrounded his entire life. So it feels like if there is a way for Adam to become impartial or to grow up as neutral as possible. Well, I would not even say neutral, as good. Good, yeah, as good as possible. This is the way. And I love that he still has the voices of reason around him, for now anyway. Well, he has the bad voices in his head, but he surrounded himself by voices of reason. Did you notice that for some reason Doc is with the them and not with Adam? Yes. That makes no sense to me. It's really weird. Like, he is obviously still doing everything that Adam wants him to do, but so do the them. So it seems as Dog has its own will. I feel like uh, because... uh last episode when he had to run under the horseshoe another piece of hell burned away it feels like there's not enough hell left in dog for him to be the blind loyal hellhound that he was supposed to be and now he's actually siding with the dem yeah he's a tiny dog with a tiny personality so we are still in Tedfield. We go over to Anathema and Nude. We have some conversation there. And we have them trying to leave and then having the tornado and everything. And then going back inside. And apparently Anathema knew that there was going to be this kind of weather because she references Prophecy 691. And I say, if she knew that there's a tornado outside, why did they leave the house? Well, my understanding would be that she didn't expect it to be happening already. But they have like a very clear timeline. So I was very disappointed by like, Anathema, you're supposed to have an alarm for those things. Yeah, she should be better at this. Or maybe just look outside the window. I think that she knew about the prophecy of her and Newt getting together and because she doesn't really know who she, who he is and it makes sense that she would be kind of like, but, but why would I do that? I don't want to do that. I don't know who this guy is. So she was trying to delay slash avoid it. Yeah, that's a good point. So speaking of the prophecy, that prophecy also does not have a number. And that prophecy says, Let the wheel of fates turn, let hearts enjoin, there are other fires than mine, when the whirlwind worlds reach out to one another. And that, of course, this is what precipitates Newt saying that he's never traveled, that he's never done this, that he's never done that. And obviously, he has an 
never kissed a girl and he's a virgin. And I am not a fan of this entire thing. I am not a fan of the, oh, you are predestined to have sex with each other. I am not a fan of, your ancestors used to burn my ancestors, but now we're turned foes to lovers. And I'm also not a fan of the cliche, one of them is a virgin. So this is a triple thanks, but no thanks for me. I knew that you would have this approach to this. (laughs) I guess I know you quite well by now. What? I absolutely adore this moment because... (laughs) Okay. No, it's because I feel like... I mean, first of all, Anathema is hot as fuck. Yes. She is gorgeous. So there's no wonder that New is into her. And Newton is cute as a button and he just solved the mystery of who the antichrist is so he is impressive as well he is smart and yes she doesn't know him very well but then again she's lived and her family lived by the prophecy book for 400 years and it has never steered them wrong so i feel like she's like you know what i am kind of attracted to this guy and the prophecy says that I'm going to do this. Why avoid it? Let's just do it. And then they kiss for the first time. And to me, that's the moment where she's like, oh, actually, I am really into this. So to me, it's very consensual, very cute, very adorable. And I love how they do this scene, kind of cutting back and forth with... Shadwell and Madame Tracy. Shadwell and Madame Tracy. There is this whole burning pin in the map situation that doesn't really get much more explanation but if I remember correctly we will talk about it in the book episode a little bit more and it's just I don't know I feel like it's just very well done and I understand why you hate it and like I'm not a huge fan of this trope either of this like well I guess it's been written so let's do it but to me they find enough other reasons to get together also Anathema is like listen the world is gonna end in four hours anyway my as well he's cute might as well have some fun yeah good points uh, apart from the fact that their kissing looks incredibly awkward and bad Aww. wow it's very obvious he has not done this before and kissing someone who has never done this before is never nice but she can teach him though. yeah teach him in four hours no no <laughs> so we do cut over to Shadowell and Madame Tracy quite a bit and I absolutely love that part for some reason because once again Shadwell spews his usual bullshit towards her but Madame Tracy actually is like oh you say the nicest things so she's actually super super sweet I love Madame Tracy she's way too good for this world offering to pay for his ticket actually giving him the idea of going to Azurafel for money and everything and also I was positively surprised that Shadwell actually has a conscience that he now realizes that he did send Newt somewhere dangerous and that he should not have let him go alone and that he needs to go there so I'm happy with that yeah I have referred to calling him Shitwell in this episode, I believe. So, or did I? I don't know. Yes, you, you you called him Shitwell in this scene. I did not refrain from calling him Shitwell, but I believe I only called him Shitwell once. And now several times. But just to kind of make it clear. But yes, arguably he is being... His least worst self. Yeah, least worst self is a good way to put it. Also, to me, this is a bit of a proof that he didn't realize that this would be anything dangerous or special. He did not think that this would pan out because usually nothing does pan out. But now that he sees the pin burning and flying out of the map and everything, he knows, ooh, ooh, shit's a foot. Time to get the 
money and follow Newt. Before we can do that, we have to go to Tadfield one last time because we have Adam talking himself up into a frenzy, so much so that he actually starts hovering above the ground, which is very, very classic demonic position, supernatural powers, rah, rah, rah. And huge props to them that even when he fucking starts hovering, they do not stop talking back. So I am really happy for them. And obviously Adam descends even more into his bad leadership role by telling them to stop talking and vanishing their mouths. I feel like that is a moment where hopefully, and we do not get to see any more of this in this episode, but this is the moment I hope where he realizes that he is stepping a little too far past the line. I mean, he already did step past the line. Yes, but silencing them by taking away their mouths is a lot. And I hope that this is going to be the first step to a wake-up call. So we'll see. Hopefully. We'll see next episode. We'll see. But before we go to the next episode, we have to go into our last scene of this one, which is the bookshop. Aziraphale repeatedly has said to Crowley that he just needs to speak to a higher authority and then all would be sorted. He's so sure of that. And so he is calling a higher authority. And the higher authority is the Metatron. It's very important that it's not Metatron. It's the Metatron. Yep. Which is exactly not who he was hoping to talk to. Talking to me is talking to God. (laughs) And Azraffel is like, yeah, well, actually, it's not. Because it's like talking to the presidential spokesperson and not the actual president. So, like, technically, it's somebody who should share the same point of view. But it's not the same person. So, uh, yeah. No, 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 no. And somehow they keep thinking that Azeraphal is on their side. So they're like, oh, we'll see you later. Or we will keep the gates open. We have to go. So... You know, join us whenever you're ready. There is no other option. It is unthinkable that a demon would not fight on the side of hell and an angel would not fight on the side of heaven. And this is very, it can't be what shouldn't be, which is also reflected in the Zero Fell's mindset that led us to this moment. But of course, now that he also learns that the next step for Armageddon is going to be the nuclear mutual destruction of the entire world, a classic we see that this is the turning point for Aziraphale, obviously. But Shadwell would not be Shadwell if he did not have the worst possible timing. Because obviously everything has to happen at the same time. I'm pretty sure there's going to be something in the book of Agnes that refers to this scene. Because first, Shadwell watches everything happen through the letterbox, through the letter opening in the door. And it makes sense that the realization that he comes to is gotta be demonic shit. So he comes in and I was very much surprised that Shadwell actually is this brave because he is single-handedly facing down a demon with just a bell, a candle and a book. Dude got balls and I did not expect that. So I was very surprised and impressed. This is not my favorite moment of the episode. I mean, it is expectable that... Aziraphale is going to end up in the circle because he says, don't go inside the circle so many times that it's like 100% it's going to happen. But 
I just hate when people just do without thinking as a trope. It's just not my favorite thing. But, you know, like, it works. And obviously now Shitwell being Shitwell again, thinking that he's actually the one who did this. And he actually thinks that he's the one who, like, pointed at Aziraphale and exercised him. Even though Azurifel says multiple times, just don't go inside the circle because the gate is still open or it is still active. But demons lie. I'm with you that usually the trope, no thank you, but it makes so much sense in how everything is set up in this scene that I don't mind it. Did you notice that Azurifel, when he tries to call Crowley in this scene... He drops the speaker piece of his telephone and we actually saw this in the Crowley scene very, very shortly. So that was a nice little tidbit. So this is happening at the same time as Crowley is fighting for his life. Just that Aziraphale, for some reason, has to face down a human and Crowley is facing down two demons. Well, at this point, just one. (laughs) Take that as you will. Also, did you notice? So Shadwell leaves and a candle is knocked over and rolls to the side. Did you notice what the piece of paper is that catches fire? No. It's the booklet for The Sound of Music. (laughs) That is perfect. That is actually very, very good. Uh, Also, I love the fact that we've mentioned the escalation of Aziraphale's vocabulary when he finally ends up in the circle and gets ascended into heaven. He goes, oh, fuck. Which, as we have mentioned multiple times, when people curse on TV shows, it has to be done with a certain finesse and it has to be for a reason. And if this is not a reason, I don't think there is a reason. It's absolute perfection. So let's wrap this shit up because holy... yeah. I am very unhappy that our ineffable husbands are still and are even more broken up than last episode. The singular and the parallel storyline with Crowley, the demons, and the Xerophel and the angels is very, very well done, though, and props to that. I am also not happy, as I said, with the foes turned to lovers, ancestors hated each other's, now we're instant lovers thingy. Like I said, also repeatedly... Adam is incredibly creepy. I already said all those things. I did not expect that I would be saying all those things so clearly in the episode. As I also said repeatedly, I'm very happy (laughs) with the them. They're showing more spine than most adults. I'm also praising Shadwell for being an actual brave witch finder. Oh, and lastly... The storyline with the delivery man remains one of my absolute favorite things. And I am very sad that this is now all over for him. And I also feel very bad for Maud. And that is all I have to say because apparently I said everything repeatedly in the episode. Aww. <laughs> so before I, I actually share my final thoughts, for some reason, I thought that this is the second last episode by the time I finished it, that, or, that there's oh, only one episode left. Okay. Because we're so close to the end of the world that I was just like, oh no, it's nearly over. Oh, there's only one episode left. However, the moment we start recording, I'm like, oh fuck, this is only episode four and there's two more left. <laughs> now, 
Okay. Imagine my thought process as I was writing this then. I hate that we are nearing the end. (laughs) Not quite, but we are. Everything is hyping up. And as it often tends to be, everything seems to be going very, very, very wrong before it goes right, hopefully. Fingers crossed. The one thing that I enjoyed is that Crowley and Aziraphale aren't angry at each other anymore and they are willing or ready to get back together if they ever get back on the same plane is my thinking so at this point i feel like aziraphale is because he calls crowley and he calls him to tell him about the situation and and who the antichrist is so he is finally go getting to the point of do you know what i'm ready i'm done with this bullshit of heaven and hell I just want to be with the love of my life so if they ever are on the same plane again I believe that they will be together so for now full speed ahead to the next episode because I want to see them together now and with this we say thank you for listening if you want to follow us on social media you can find us as the apple of truth on twitter and instagram we will keep you updated if or when twitter crashes and burns you can also send us your comments and complaints to goodomens at taot-podcast.com if you want to get that sweet sweet extra content early episode release and more like six seasons of another show more head to patreon.com slash T-A-O-T podcast. And if you like what you hear, please do write us a positive iTunes review. They help a ridiculous amount. And don't forget to pester all your friends about us. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Bye.